Welcome to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. I'm Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa, also the epicenter of the polar vortex. Hey, if you value what we do, folks, we can sure use your support. You can visit the uh, Fallon Forum website. There's a donations page. If you run a small business or a nonprofit, consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Uh, check out Gateway's catering and floral service as, as well. And consider Gateway's gift card program, which is good for, uh, for gifts at, at many uh, downtown establishments in Des Moines. Again, that's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines' East Village. Uh, Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. So later in the program, we will be discussing robots, uh, cryptocurrency, and the biggest rogue state in the world. Uh, those, are, those may or may not be connected. You can decide. We'll also meet a new Iowa lawmaker, Mary Madison. We'll talk with her about her expectations during her first term at the uh, State House and also why she's involved with an event focused on the Feast of the Holy Innocents. And finally, later on for our farm and food segment, Kathy Burns and I reveal, drumroll please, the 12 foods of Christmas that we have yet to try. I could put that to music, but I won't. Hey, but first, it's my pleasure to introduce Nick Johnson. He's a retired law professor at the University of Iowa. He also served on the uh, local school board there and is a commissioner on the Federal Communications Commission, among other things. Nick, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much, Ed. Pleased to be here. So uh, you and I have known each other a long time, and I've kind of, uh, kind of lost touch with you there for a while until I saw a provocative column written by you in the Cedar Rapids Gazette about the issue of population. And the title of that column is A Global Warming Win-Win-Win. So we'll kind of get a sense of what that win-win-win situation is. But first, tell us what's, uh, what's driving you to want to advance this conversation about global population. Well, I think that... Uh uh, it's really central to uh, the whole climate change challenge that, uh, that we confront, and yet uh, people tend to stay away from it, and particularly people who would like to run for political office. And uh, so I, I, I thought it was worthwhile to uh, uh, make some points about the, the role of the uh, uh, population. What do you, what do you uh, see, what do you see as populations a link to the uh, climate situation? Well, uh, for for starters, uh, you need to get some sense of the magnitude of what we're talking about. It, it, it took Homo sapiens three hundred thousand years uh, to get to uh, one billion people on planet Earth. Then, in one hundred and seventy-two years, we were at four billion, and forty-seven years later. We're at eight billion, right. uh, so this is a very rapid uh, increase. Um, another uh, problem that in an economy that seventy percent consumer purchases, uh, corporations and 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 media 
don't really appreciate talk about the uh, adverse consequences of uh, uh, consumption. Right. Uh, they'd rather we believe that more is better and too much is not enough and we should go on buying, particularly this time of year. And those things multiply on each other. Right. Uh, and, yeah, you, uh, you, you, you never hear a city or a state say, hey, we're really glad that our population held even the last decade. Or, uh, hey, it's been, been good news. We, we actually lost a few people last year. Uh, you know, our population, the population of Iowa shrank. That's never a good story, you know. Uh, <laughs> so it, it always is about growth more and more and more. I mean, not just more people, but also each 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 jurisdiction, whether it's a, a, a college, a university, a city, a county, a state. Uh, a personal, a person's independent, their own budget. It's always about more, 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 and uh, it's hard to uh, buck that uh, that uh, that conversation. That's that's kind of a, a given. You don't you don't you don't even have a. You you kind of get stared at funny if you say, well, maybe we shouldn't always be continuing to grow. Maybe there's a stable level we should be achieving. Yeah, that's not a very popular uh, a proposition to put forward. Uh, and what you open yourself up to when you start talking about the need to cut back on on population, uh, you're opening yourself up to, uh, oh, well, you're just opposed to all integration or you're trying to encourage people to have more abortions uh, or maybe uh, you're trying to encourage more assisted suicides amongst the elderly or mm -hmm or pulling the plug on them uh, when they no longer have a quality of life that yeah. just life is not enough. Well, my, 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 you're going to control the number of children like the Chinese did, or eugenics will just uh, sterilize the people who are uh, yeah. amongst the deplorables well, as well, they were once. Well, my, 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 you know, there's a reason politicians don't run on a platform of uh, to stabilize or reduce population. Uh, you know, it, it's, 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 not, it's not popular, as you said, but it's also... It's also, I mean, I don't know how somebody running for city council, county board, state legislature, even Congress would have, would be playing much of a role in that. Is there, is there a role for government in addressing this problem, short of what the Chinese did years ago with the one child per family uh, requirement? Well, yeah, there are all kinds of uh, uh, things that they could do. Um, but... Uh, well, I I encouraging people to, uh, uh, as we said during the uh, the Great Depression, uh, use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. I've mm. always found that a useful uh, guide. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, you know what we what we've done now. It it it's not just the uh, the climate change, but with these multiplying increase in the rate of increase of both population and consumption is creating uh, uh, water shortages for, for drinkable water, polluted air, deforestation, wetlands destruction, increased trash and toxic waste, depleted fisheries, finite, re uh, finite resources, uh, increased farm, river, and ocean pollution, and the substitution of concrete for agricultural land. Right, uh, but now people... So that the former open spaces are now under sprawling uh, communities and four million miles of concrete roads. But critics would argue that it's largely the over, the, the, the industrialized, 
an overconsumption-oriented West, you know, us, Europe, a few other places, that have depleted these resources that are continuing to, for example, you know, put uh, an unprecedented amount of carbon and methane and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Some would argue that it's not, it's not, uh, it's not the sheer number of people that's, that, that's the problem. It's the m- amount of consumption that is attributable, attributed to a smaller percentage of this overall population. Well, yeah, but they're they're both multiplying. So you have increased uh, consumption per person, but you also have rapidly increasing the increased number of uh, of of persons. And uh, when you do this, you end up with uh, uh, Pogo's discovery that we have uh, met the enemy and he is us, uh, because. Uh, China is the second largest uh, provider of, of right. uh, what's what's causing the, the climate change. Uh, and the U.S. is number one. And given that China's population is four times ours, their contribution by, by way of, of uh, uh, acquisition of stuff is per person one-eighth right of of what ours is and so we've we've got to really look ourselves in the mirror and take responsibility for what we've created yeah now you that's not a pleasant thing to do and and as you mentioned earlier the uh uh the the cry of politicians at all levels is growth 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 right uh we want to have more people before our next door uh, state or county does. Yeah, yeah, and more consumption. And again, I know I understand from a business point of view, the more the the bigger the uh, base you have to draw from, the more likely your chance of having a a nice uh, profit and loss statement at the at the end of the quarter. Let me let me, let me ask you this, uh, Nick. Uh, in your column in the uh, Cedar Rapids Gazette, uh, this is again back August sixteenth of this this year. You wrote, um, the, the opening line is, can women cool global warming? That is an intriguing introduction to the column. Uh, tell, us some more, tell us more about what you're, where, where, where are you taking that conversation, women cooling global warming? Well, it, it turns out that um, uh, women, of course, are uh, the producers of increased population. Uh, well, not without the help of a man. Well, that, well, not necessarily. There are alternatives to men for those who would prefer to avoid them entirely. Um, but uh, uh, that it turns out that if if you uh, give women low social status and no economic opportunity, and you prevent them from getting an education they're going to have three times as many kids as the women who at least have a secondary education. Um, so that's the win-win that, it, it, you know, women deserve this anyway. Uh, social status and economic well, opportunity we're ta- and education. We're, we're talking about e- equality. Shouldn't require or climate change for it. We're talking about equality. Yeah. 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 And, but if you could do that, a, a byproduct of it, which is rather significant byproduct, is that you're going to have far fewer births than we have now. And 
furthermore, there will be more time between pregnancies. I mean, this this is what they found out in uh, in countries that have, have tried this approach. Yeah. And in addition to that, their children are going to end up with better health and quality of life and and education. So it's uh, it's a win all, all the way around, and it's something that women can control. And uh, uh, I'm all for the women, and uh, I think that's something we ought to be doing anyway. So let me, uh, let, let, and let, that's worth mentioning in this context. So let me ask you this, Nick. Uh, again, people, your, your, your conventional response to the issue of population is all growth is good. Uh, and uh, those who study trends are saying that growth is beginning to slow. I mean, for like you pointed out, for, for a long time, the expansion from one billion to the next billion was was uh, was in leaps and bounds. Now they're saying the world's population will top out uh, in around 2080, before the 21st century ends, and they're saying it'll top out at about 10.4 billion. How do you respond to that? Well, I respond to what do you mean? The title of a book I wrote called "What Do You Mean and How Do You Know." Um, uh, it may top out because people will will start uh, dying left and right because we, we no longer have the food to feed them. There's no longer a water where they used to go get it. Uh, there's a huge proportion of the world's population that lives next to oceans or rivers or whatever not uh, for good historical reasons, and uh, they're going to be flooded out. Um, and so... Uh, you know, we've we've destroyed. Uh, there's been a 1,000-fold increase in uh, other species' natural rates of extinction right. as a result of what we've been doing. Well, right. uh, there's some of those. Uh, you know, the ferns are going to survive, and the cockroaches and whatever. Um, but uh, we're going to be long gone at the rate we're going. Um, so, and again, uh, one more question. We we're getting close to being able to having to wrap up the segment here, uh, Nick. But the uh, again, all uh, politicians, economic development types, they're all going to say more, more, more. What do scientists say? Do scientists feel that 10.4 billion people on the planet is sustainable? Do they feel that 8 billion has already gone too far? Where, where are scientists on this question? Well, they're telling us that if we're going to continue going the way we're going, we're going to somehow have to have to lasso and bring into our orbit uh, five planets uh, uh, with the resources of, uh, of, of our Earth. Uh, this uh, 21,000 scientists have signed on to this statement, uh, quote, we are jeopardizing our future by not perceiving continued rapid population growth as a primary driver behind many ecological and even societal threats. Who are you quoting uh, from there, Nick? Who's that to quote from? Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. I've got it in the, if you go to my blog and look up this column, okay. All right. uh, you'll find it in the sources. I, 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 I know it's in there, but I don't have it before me at the moment. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us, Nick. And, uh, Again, keep speaking uh, your truth, and uh, if you get pushed back against it, well, maybe you're, maybe that's a good sign, right? <laughs> well, I've always assumed that. Yeah. 
If everybody agrees with me, I'm, I'm probably on the wrong track. <laughs> Nick, uh, folks have been talking with Nicholas Johnson. Nick, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. I really appreciate what you've done over the years. Thank you. Hey, when we come back, folks, again, this is Ed Fallon. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about robots, uh, cryptocurrency, and the biggest rogue state relevant to what's going on at COPE 15 and beyond. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. You know, at a time when big corporations, and we're talking huge corporations, control most of the media, the niche that we and other local entities like this provide are more important than ever. So please support what we do. Uh, go to the Fallon Forum website, uh, donate, even better, become a monthly sponsor. And uh, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Architecture by Synthesis, owner Mark Clipsham says that no matter how you plan or renovate your project, please use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford, and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. That's Architecture by Synthesis. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. All right, folks, um, it appears that uh, the robots have arrived, and I believe that they are on the verge of taking over. Uh, you know, the, the New, York, New York Times um, did an interesting piece on this recently, uh, pointing out that the social media's newest star is a robot. It's called ChatGPT, and apparently it tries to answer questions like a normal flesh-and-blood person would answer. And uh, again, just this came out a couple weeks ago, but um, you know, people are starting to share what this robot can do. And uh, some journalists, uh, let's see, they told it to to quote write a pretty decent story, right? You know, write a story, and it did. It wrote a you know, decent story. I, I don't know if it's as good as a as a book a human being would write. Uh, see Marcher Walker Pilgrim for details. Okay, that was a shameless plug, but you know. Uh, <laughs> Um, other people who were kind of quizzing this robot got it to write uh, 
This is interesting. A, 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 an academic essay on the theories of nationalism. Wow, that's impressive. And um, also make some jokes. <laughs> so I guess if you got a robot that could joke, uh, that's that's uh, that's all also the good stuff, right? It's uh, it's remarkable that these robots can do these things. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Given this is incredible, and there's a lot of excitement about it. I get I get the excitement as well, and you know people are really touting the the positive aspects of artificial intelligence. Uh, you know why robots are awesome. Self-driving cars, uh, cars that fix themselves. I would like one of those. Um, risk-free surgeries. Who doesn't want a risk-free surgery? This will take way beyond Alexa. I, I, I imagine you can get a robot to do your dishes. That would also be pretty cool. So all these benefits um, are, you know, causing people to think, oh, this is exciting. Robots, AI, woo -hoo. But there are so many potential downsides. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad that the New York Times at least looked at some of those. Uh, okay, here's an obvious one. You can lose your job to a robot. I mean, I know a lot of people have already lost their jobs to automation. Uh, but as somebody points out in this uh, article in the Times, there's a difference between a machine that can help put together car parts and a robot that can think better than humans. If AI reaches the heights that some researchers hope, it will be able to do almost anything people can, but better. And, uh, you know, again, we're almost... we. we we're kind of on the cusp of that. There was a, there was a survey of, um, of researchers, researchers who, robot researchers, um, <laughs> roboteers, let's call them that, uh, about the potential uh, negative side effects of artificial intelligence. And about half of them, about half of those who were polled, half of these robot researchers said that there was a 10% or greater chance that the outcome would be extremely bad and by that, they meant human extinction. You know, these are people who, they, they do this for a living. And half of them are saying that there's a 10% chance, or maybe that's what, a 5% chance, that this could be really, really bad, meaning even human extinction. So, yeah, it's, it's a real risk. And, you know, it's funny. We have all these movies about robots, right? I mean, I think about the Matrix, uh, where robots basically take over. They're farming human beings, not as food, but as a source of power, because, of course, what is food to a robot? It's electricity. So, you know, how far, how far are these things from reality? You know, I don't think they're very far at all. And I think, I think this is time to be putting the brakes on this stuff. I mean, slamming on the brakes on this stuff. But do we have the capacity to do that? I mean, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a capitalist system where every kind of creative innovation is, 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 uh, is, is rewarded, regardless of whether it has any, you know, any obvious benefit to the world, if you, can, if you can say that it has benefit. And again, the benefits being listed are saves time, uh, saves, you know, we don't have to think as hard. Uh, we have more time for, quote, leisure, meaning, I guess, sitting in front of a screen. I don't know what it means. But, you know, those aren't good standards. Uh, we ought to be asking much deeper questions. We also ought to, be, ought to be asking deep questions about cryptocurrency. Yes, I just segued into cryptocurrency. And, um, you know, I, <laughs> we, we, we're seeing the crash right now, folks, and it's probably, people analyzing this stuff say it's probably going to get worse. 
And uh, that's okay with me. I, I do not mind. I mean, I don't, I don't like seeing lives hurt, people ruined. I mean, money, it's all pretty artificial, isn't it? It used to be the gold standard, but hey, what that, that's pretty artificial. Why is gold any better than, say, marble or granite or any other rock? Why, why is gold so special? Somebody determined that it was way back when, and it became the standard. And now it's the uh, full faith and credit of the U.S. government. I know that sounds like a really funny standard, right? Given the, given the fact that we uh, nearly had the government overthrown on January 6th, uh, we had the Civil War, we've had so many other times in our history when the full faith and credit of the U.S. government did not seem to be very stable. Um, probably earliest on 1812 when the British burned the White House. Uh, so you know, I, don't, um, I, I don't have a lot of confidence even in the money we use. But I tell you, it's a lot better to be able to carry around some bills in your pocket. And uh, along with that, maybe even some little cards that, that say Visa or MasterCard on them. Uh, that's a lot easier to lug around than, say, a whole bunch of doubloons. You know, so I get the advantage of money that way. And the idea that, that there's a certain, you know, type of currency that works for how we transact business. That makes a lot of sense. What makes more sense to me is to try to move beyond that to uh, a more barter-based system. But, of course, um, you know, I, I, I've got to be careful about that because uh, we ought to be careful about that because the IRS wants to uh, tax any barter. And actually, this is a direct quote from the IRS's website. Um, Sometimes when the right opportunity present, presents itself, I can see some bureaucrats saying this with a smiley face. Sometimes when the right opportunity presents itself, you may be able to pay for goods and services that you need or want by trading goods that you own or providing a service that you can, you can perform in return. An example of this is if you own a lawn maintenance company and receive legal services from an attorney and pay for those services by providing an agreed-upon amount of mowing and maintenance services at the attorney's home or place of business. In this scenario, the fair market value of the legal services provided is taxable to you as the lawn maintenance company owner. At the same time, the fair market value of the lawn and maintenance services you provide is taxable to the attorney or his firm. Okay, that's on the IRS's website. I hope you were delighted by my, uh, my rendition of an IRS bureaucrat. But um, I understand. They, they want to tax every form of, uh, of income. And if you're bartering, I get that. That's, that's something that IRS wants to tax. That said, again, if they're going to tax everything, maybe we all should be looking at ways in which we can use barter and trade uh, and just helping each other out in non-monetary ways. Maybe that's the best currency out there. That said, again, cash. Yeah, we're going to need cash. <laughs> Whether cash is a checkbook or the green bills or even change for those few parking meters left in the world that still take change, uh, credit cards, PayPal, Venmo, etc. That's all necessary stuff in today's world. But, you know... To the extent that we can start um, valuing, and I'm putting this in quote, valuing labor or goods that we exchange with people, services that we can exchange with people, that's not a bad, that's not a bad situation. It's certainly, in my opinion, all this is better than cryptocurrency. And again, I, I am not knowledgeable on cryptocurrency, but I remember looking at this stuff when it first came out and thinking, this looks really, really dumb. This cannot work. So, 
I saw this quote from, I will just call him or her an astute observer because I couldn't find a name anywhere. It was in, in the, uh, in, in, online somewhere. And they said, I got to thinking about cryptocurrency because someone asked why, as a foreigner, should I have trust in U.S. dollars? The U.S. minimum wage is $7.50 an hour. So if you have $750, you can have a U.S. citizen work for you for 100 hours. That's why people recognize money as a, I think that math might be wrong, actually. Uh, that's why people recognize money as a store of value. It's the confidence that you can get work or the products of work from the economy the currency comes from. Ergo, the U.S. dollar is backed by a claim on U.S. labor. That's interesting to me because, you know, you, we always hear them default to it's based on the faith and full credit of the U.S. government. So, yeah, maybe... Uh, Maybe being backed by actual labor is a better standard, but uh, it does it does it does rub the wrong way to think that okay, basically uh, the U.S. dollar as international currency means we can get seven dollars and fifty cents out of each worker, <laughs> which is so wrong. Anyway, um, there was a great article written back in um, April of 2021 by Nathan Robinson for a publication called Current Affairs. And uh, this guy kind of nailed it uh, way before. I mean, this is back in April 2021. This is like a year and a half ago, more than a year and a half ago. You know, he pointed out, you know, the, all the appeals of, um, of, uh, of cryptocurrency. You don't have to use a bank. You don't have to give your credit card information to anyone. It's not tied to any particular country, so there's no currency exchange fees. Um, that cryptocurrency is basically the digital equivalent of cash. He pointed out that it's easy to hide, it's difficult to trace, meaning it's also more appealing to criminals. Uh, <laughs> he goes on to point out all the different ways in which uh, this whole venture into cryptocurrency was a bad idea. Uh, it's, it's a great article, and he basically nails it. I'm surprised it took us this long to see this kind of collapse. I'm surprised it's, it hasn't even been more precipitous than it has been. And it won't be that long, I don't think, before we see it continuing to spiral. Uh, so anyway, uh, sorry to those who've lost money doing this. Uh, again, hats off to those of you who made money. Um, <laughs> one more thing I want to talk about before we go to another conversation is rogue states. Okay, when you think about rogue states, what comes to mind? Iran, Russia, North Korea. Sure. Yeah, they're, they're probably on the list. But George Mumbayat, he's with The Guardian, uh, the English newspaper, argues that the biggest, baddest rogue state in the world is the U.S. And he makes a good point. He looks at the uh, COP15 Biodiversity Summit just wrapped up in uh, Montreal. The uh, 30 by 30 agreement that was passed commits governments to conserving nearly one-third of Earth for nature by 2030. 30% of the Earth by 2030. That's where the 30 by 30 comes from. Uh, and also at the same time, respecting indigenous and traditional ter territories in the expansion of these new protected areas. So of the 198 nation states on Earth, only two have not been involved in this COPE, this biodiversity COPE, or the previous one, previous ones. And those two are the Vatican and the U.S. Okay, so nobody cares much what the Vatican does. I mean, except for you're Catholic. But in terms of the global scene... Uh, you know, the Vatican is not a big player. 
But uh, as Mumbai points out in The Guardian, um, this is not the only uh, key international treaty signed by 196 nations out of 198. This is not the only international treaty that the U.S. has refused to be party to. He lists a few others. The Rome Statute on International Crimes. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, the treaties banning cluster bombs and landmines. I know what that is, and it's unconscionable that our country is not part of that. Uh, the Convention on Discrimination Against Women. The Basel Convention on Hazardous Waste. The Convention on the Law of the Sea. The Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. The, the Employment Policy Convention. And the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Those are not all, but that's a long list of treaties and agreements that the U.S. has not signed on to. Mumbai claims that the, the U.S. is the only independent nation on earth not to ratify, in addition to those, the Convention on the Rights of the Child. He says, and I quote, perhaps this is because the U.S. is the only nation to sentence children to life imprisonment without parole, among many other brutal policies. While others play by the rules, the most powerful nation refuses. If this country were a person, We'd call it a psychopath. As it is not a person, we should call it what it is, a rogue state. So my question for you folks, is Mumbaiat going too far? Now, I want to say it's hard for me as an Irish-American with strong family connections to our ancestral home in, in County Roscommon. I, it's hard to hear any criticism from an Englishman, uh, given the British Empire's track record of destruction and persecution, not just in Ireland, but around the world, but that would be deflection, you know. Sure, you know, I, I mean, no doubt Great Britain is going to go down as perhaps one of the worst, okay, and longest ruling uh, rogue nations in history. And presently, Great Britain is, well, okay, it's kind of pathetic as a world power. It's even mediocre as a run-of-the-mill country. Um, and as is often the case, though, you know, some of the best critics of a country or a, an institution or a profession, often the best critics come from within you know, when it comes to England, you know, see John Oliver for details. So objectively, again, objectively, I don't at all mind Monbiot calling the U.S. a rogue nation because I think he makes some really, really good points. Much of what he says is, very sadly, it's true. I, I mean, it's true. We, we have not signed all these treaties that every other nation in the world and most nations in the world have signed. You know, so we are a hot mess, folks. We're a bad neighbor. We don't play well with others. And if we did, we would have been at the uh, table in Montreal for the COP15 Biodiversity Conference. And by the way, I just want to say criticizing America does not make me unpatriotic. I do not hate America. Uh, you know, heck, if making New Year's resolutions doesn't mean you, you know, making New Year's resolutions doesn't make you a bad person, right? You're trying to fix yourself. I'm criticizing us because we need to fix America. No, we don't need to make America great again. We need to bring America into sync with a lot of the initiatives happening around the world that we just aren't willing to be a part of. Folks, this is Ed Fallon. We've got to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be talking with newly elected Iowa State Rep Mary Madison. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. You are not a
Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. folks, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And uh, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. I would now like to welcome to the program Mary Madison. She is the recently elected state representative from West Des Moines, that part of uh, that part of Iowa. Mary, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. And I welcome, want to talk about an event that you're involved with and also about your expectations for being at the State House. But first, a bit of your background. I mean, you were, you're a Democrat. You were elected during a year in Iowa where Republicans pretty much did whatever they wanted. <laughs> so... <laughs> Congratulations, but tell us a bit about your background. Well, I began my career as a school teacher, preschool through, um, I'm certified K through 12, and then I went into school counseling, and I'm a community activist and volunteer, and I'm also a minister of the gospel. Hmm. And uh, I'm a mother of three children, and that has that factors into what I do and the things that I'm concerned in, and uh, mental health as well, and labor. Yeah, and you've been involved with a, uh, a a peace committee that is organized by local churches here, and your church is the uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church, I right. believe. Right, Saint Paul. Yeah. Amy Church, African right. Methodist Episcopal Church. And you're involved with a, a committee that is uh, putting on, an, an it's a pretty much an annual event, uh, recognizing the Feast of the Holy Innocents. And just, first of all, just so people know, what is the Feast of the Holy Innocents? Well, it comes from the, the chapter of um, Matthew, second uh, chapter, and it's talking about how uh, Herod wanted to killed Jesus, and uh, he was he was um, interested so much so that he he would kill all the children about that age. Cover his bases. Right. Yeah. So pretty horrible. Everybody horrible. was extend, expendable. And those were the innocents that right. this feast mm -hmm. recognizes. Yes. And, of and course, so it has grown because there's violence around the world. 
and there in so many uh, ways. And so much violence against children. Right. Yeah. And children, children are the innocent victims of war. Yeah. Okay. There's nothing they can do. They're just, you know, collateral damage in some ways. And sometimes, recently, it seems to me that they're aiming at facilities that are hospitals or schools or. Mm-hmm. So, so they just become the victims. Yeah. And uh, again, places all over the country, maybe all over the world. All over the world. Recognize the Feast of the Holy Innocents. But yes. here in Des Moines, you've been involved with a particular uh, event coming up that, uh, that, that you want people to know about. Yes. And it is the, um, it's on Wednesday, December 28th at 6.30 at the First United Methodist Church on Pleasant Street, 1001 Pleasant Street. And it's the a Feast of the Holy Innocents Prayer Service for Peace. And our theme this year is, um, it recalls the slaughter of the innocent children. And it's called, um, Our Youngest Victims Ever Lifted Up. So we're still, there's still an outcry mm. about the victimization of children. Mm. And, and if people want to learn more about that, is there a website or some place that people can go to learn more? There's a Facebook page, and it's the um, Peace Committee's uh, face, the Des Moines Peace Committee face page. Des Moines Peace Committee Facebook page. All right. Mm-hmm. So you're you're very much uh, your faith is a very big part of your life. To what extent would you say your faith influenced your decision to run for the state house? I think it played a, a big part uh, because. The humanity of everyday people didn't seem to influence some of the legislation and some of the hate speak that came out, and it it became divisive. I thought, uh, dividing different groups, ethnic and religious groups, mm-hmm. and so rather than doing the work of serving the people, mm-hmm. and so you're forced then to take a stand, and you can just be verbal about it. I can talk to my neighbors, talk to my family's family, or I can do something, and this is a something I chose to do. Right. Very good. And so, you know, a lot of times when, the, when, when people think about uh, politicians and religion, they envision a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> and here you are, are a, a Democrat, uh, and uh, very active in your church, and mm-hmm. uh, you're, you're bringing a faith perspective to the Capitol. Again, a place where you will find a lot of uh, people who, who do, you know, who are very much in, involved in their particular perspective on, on their faith. And, and for the most part, you, you, you'll see a, the predominant, of course, was going to be Christian. And you, uh, you as a Christian, do, do you see yourself having any ability to maybe uh, connect with people uh, with Republicans across the aisle who have a, a faith perspective as well, maybe very different than yours, but just by virtue of being coming from the same tradition, do you see yourself as having some kind of a capacity to maybe reach out to them? I think that's the humanity aspect of it. We all come there as more than um, I come there as more than a teacher, more than uh, a religious person, although that does influence what I do. And I think it's, um, you're going to make choices based on those things, but we can always talk. Mm -hmm. And when we deviate from that and people are angry and they can't even talk about a topic, Mm -hmm. now we've got, that isn't a religious focus, that isn't any kind of focus, it's just anger. 
um, rooting up in a person as opposed to talking about the issues and trying to be innovative and collaborative. So, so as a teacher, you're going to, uh, yeah, I mean, this, it probably concerns you that you're probably going to see a conversation about uh, charter schools, about um, voucher programs, mm-hmm. about initiatives that nearly everybody involved in education says are going to hurt schools. Yes. How, how, does, how does your background in education influence your, your, um, your capacity to talk about that I initiative? I think um, I bring a lot to the table because of my background. And one of those things is that I know that there are over 400,000 students and the public school takes everybody and we try to help everybody as they come. You don't get to say, I'll test you and you know, if you meet the criteria, then you have a slot. So uh, teachers work really hard uh, to teach every child that comes in, regardless of disability and you know any other thing that they have. And that might, uh, I mean, th- that capacity will probably be impacted if, uh, if, if children who have the wherewithal or, or who are inclined to send their children to a religious school mm-hmm. that kind of reflects their own particular perspective on, say, Christianity, mm-hmm. you will see a, con- a greater concentration of kids with higher needs in the public school system placing greater demands on the system with presumably less funds. Right, because you're taking the public school funds, and that is our, our, our charter. We're supposed to be taking care of the public school. It doesn't say that, you know, you, you want all the children to have a great education mm-hmm. in a vibrant school, but you can't do that unless you're funding it mm-hmm. and that you're supporting the school. And if we go to session and we're talking about private school, and we've got over 400,000, almost 500,000 students mm. at a public school, and that isn't our topic. We're talking about taking funds out of that mm. place. And so there's something wrong with that. Yeah, and, but you, you'll see a pretty vigorous uh, defense of charter schools. I mean, our, our governor feels so strongly about this that she was willing to run opponents against, what was it, eight or nine Republicans who didn't agree with her? Right. And she beat most of them. Yes. <laughs> it's going to be a very... A very strong push for this further erosion of public education. Yeah, but some things are just wrong. First of all, to pit one group against the other, that wasn't her mandate to find other Republicans who will uh, voice her opinion. Mm -hmm. She was defeated on that issue, and it should have, if we're talking about democracy and the (laughs) legislature, then it should have flowed as it should have, you know. Mm. She she had her, her opinion. People honored it. It went to committee. There's a bill. They voted against it. And mm. what happens to the rural community mm. with one school? Mm. And it's well, not a private school. No, and we've seen uh, in, increasing challenges in rural communities with all the mergers. That's right. I mean, there, there, there are some places where you've got three school districts now merged into one. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And so you're willing to, um, almost like the innocents, you know, their collateral damage for yeah. your political view. So you're going to be uh, one of 35 Democrats? 30, 37. 37 Democrats, really? I thought it might be even less than that, but uh, okay, well, good. Uh, <laughs> it's still not a lot of... No, it's, it's, it's not. It's a very small minority. Comp- I mean, when I was a legislator, it was 51, 49 once. It was 55, 45. Mm-hmm. I think once it was, it was 63, 37. 
And so that's that was it was really hard to get anything done mm-hmm. when you're 63 votes for the majority and you're in the one you're in the caucus with 37 votes. How do you see how do you see yourself operating in that kind of an environment? I think uh, being the voice for the people that I serve on the issues that are pertinent to my constituents as well as just people in general because people have children and they're, um, mm-hmm. they go to school, they move to communities with a decent school. Right. And so all of these aspects affect the family. Mm. And I'm concerned about people as opposed to politics. Yeah. So, now, West Des Moines historically has, uh, I mean, when I was up there, it was a solid Republican community. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of shifted to be a little bit more purple, shall we say. Uh, and here you are in, in, in a fairly big Republican wave in Iowa winning, winning that seat. How did you do it? <laughs> I, well, I think people are concerned with the same issues. They want a vibrant uh, school. They want uh, teachers to be able to do their job without censorship and mm-hmm. name-calling. And uh, they want... The schools they used to have with the high um, academic scores and things like that. So um, the public doesn't know, I think, what's uh, happening because sometimes these bills are framed in something that suggests we're taking care of the public. Hmm. We want a great school, but it's not your school, local school. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think... Um, people are concerned, they're anxious, they, you know, they're worried about the same things that I am. Mm. And so sometimes a different point of view is helpful to them. And they can see that too. People are smart. After so many years and the schools aren't getting better, Mm. but you're taking money out, Mm. it's kind of a basic. uh, That that level of basic math, most people can grasp. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So a, a couple issues that are very important to to, to me and Kathy and our audience, too. Uh, one is these carbon dioxide pipelines. Uh, we think they're a really, really bad idea. And um, I know that Democrats and Republicans have been on both sides of this issue. Mm-hmm. I know there's going to be an, is- an effort to try to uh, limit the use of eminent domain that, so that a private company like these pipeline companies mm-hmm. can't take people's land to build these pipelines. Where, where do you, have you thought at all about that issue or do you know where you stand on it? Yes, there were. There was a uh, a meeting where uh, rule some rural people were talking about that and how it would impact them. And so I think we have to get all the information out and the public whose land you want to take, more or less, they have a view and they should be heard. And uh, and agree to it. It's not something. It, it should be for the public good. Mm-hmm. That's what eminent eminent domain historically. Is. That's what it has right. been. Right. Yeah. So it's not for a corporation or yeah any particular company. Yeah. So okay. the perspective has to change. Yeah. Very good. Well, one other issue that I know uh, that that has been something we discuss frequently on this program is uh, the importance of local food security and. We're kind of out of time, but maybe we'll have you back on sometime to talk about that. Again, those are two things, restricting eminent domain 
and promoting better local food security. Those are things that are bipartisan. Hopefully, mm -hmm. there can be some important. agreement about those. Yeah. Well, Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having and me. And Mary Madison, newly elected state representative from West Des Moines. Uh, she's on the Peace Committee that is promoting the uh, Feast of the Holy Innocence service coming up on Wednesday, December 28th here in Des Moines at First United Methodist Church. Mary, again, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Hey, folks, uh, when we come back from a short break, uh, Kathy Burns and I will be discussing the 12 foods of Christmas that we have yet to try. And one of them is Boris Head, and I won't be trying that. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Lipsham is committed to the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark says no matter how you plan or renovate your project, use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. A beautiful project will be revered, maintained, and valued, and is the best investment you can make for a future we all share. Learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you folks, broadcasting from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Remember, you can support this alternative to the crazy talk on the right by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit, doing good work, consider becoming a sponsor of the program. Speaking of sponsors, thanks again to Gateway Marketing Cafe, Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-out, carry-out, Dine-in, rather, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week. And they've got a great gift idea, Gateway Gift Cards. These can be used not only at Gateway Market, but at several great Central Iowa restaurants as well, including Centro, Django, Malo, Zombie Burger, and more. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Joining me here in the studio, we're going to be talking about Christmas and holiday food. And I'm a little bit nervous about this. Um, we're good eaters, and you know I I love food. You're, you're worried I'm going to talk on and on and on and on and on. No, about I'm food. just worried about some of the things that we might consider <laughs> to be edible. Well, <laughs> there are there are a lot of traditional Christmas foods in many different places and cultures. Um, I looked at a list of some of them from uh, past and present, and see that we actually um, we have a pretty good deal, but. Just for reference, back in the 17th century, there was a cookery book that listed um, a feast, a Christmas feast for nobility, and there were two courses. The first course showed 18 meat dishes <laughs> and 11 dishes in the second course. And um, wait, wait, they didn't offer a vegan alternative. So, some of the some of the non-meat dishes were like lemons and oranges or salad, kind of like a chef's salad. Yeah. So they had very few non-meat dishes. Okay. 
so I thought it'd be fun to talk about what we haven't tried or what we might right. try. Yeah, so, um, all right, you start us off. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we're doing is the 12 foods of Christmas that we have yet to try. But we promise we won't put it to some. We, not with at me At least singing. not this year, at least not, not this year. Not with me. So there, um, the, the first four on our list are from the 17th century menu. I would like to try roast goose. Well, you know, yeah, the, uh, yeah, the, the fatted goose, there's lots of uh, great references to goose in Christmas literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, with Scrooge, of course, you know, coming well, through with the goose at the last minute. And then in, in this, uh, this old, old recipe, it calls for two bran geeses. And I looked that up. Bran geese is a small uh, uh, sea goose, about two-thirds the size of a Canada goose. So you need at least two. This could be a win-win situation because a lot of cities are trying to control a runaway <laughs> goose population. Canada goose is just out of control in Des Moines. Mm-hmm. And we could start by maybe encouraging some of those geese to become Christmas dinner? Well, you have a talk with okay, them. Talk in the meantime, them. number two on our list from the, the nobility menu is quince pie. Uh, I have a grandson, Quincy, and we're not going to chop him up and eat him in pie. But what, what if this we can't is find the fruit. Can you, this is the can, fruit. You, can you hear he be our backdrop? Our, well, it's kind it's kind of like a it's kind of like a mincemeat pie okay. without the meat. So um, a, a third one was called a standing tart in puff paste, preserved fruits, pippins. That's a kind of apple. Etc. And I just want to try that because it's it has puff paste in it, and paste means pastry. Pastry. Okay, I was going to say what's puff paste. Mm-hmm. Pastry. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. And the fourth item from that uh, 17th century: <laughs> a kid with a pudding in his belly. Can we use Quincy for that? Well, <laughs> or a goat. <laughs> okay, uh, or a goat. It's it seems that Elizabethans put puddings in all kinds of of. Uh, animals' bellies, like mm. goat, pig, rabbit, and pike. Pike? Um, you mean like a fish? Yes. Wow. I believe. Okay. And then I'm not sure uh, what the pudding is, but it says, make any such pudding as you like best. <laughs> so whatever. If you want to do tapioca, go for it. Uh, the next three of our foods that we have yet to try are puddings. We have not tried figgy pudding, you know, plum pudding, or Yorkshire pudding. You know, and none of those sound good to me. I'll just be honest with you. I think the fig... Fig pudding sounds good. Plum. I think, I think pudding f- with pl- with fruit sounds good. I think good. Figgy, figgy pudding is fun to say, but I don't think it's something I... I mean, I'd give it a try. Of course, I'll try anything once. Sure. Well, but I don't know. Well, wait till you get farther in the list. Um, <laughs> okay. The Yorkshire pudding sounds nice because it's just a batter of eggs, flour, and milk. And then it's, it's like a little pastry, and then that is a side dish, and you pour other stuff over it, like onions or gravy. So a Yorkshire oh. pudding sounds sounds nice. Okay. I like any yeah. kind of bread thing. Um, numbers eight and nine are both meats. Now we're not we're not on the the list up from before yet, but I I <laughs> looked at a boar's head, <laughs> and it really is a pig's head, it's, and it's looking at you on the plate. It's not even a good Christmas carol, I mean, <laughs> let alone a Christmas dish. I mean, why? I, I, I'm I'm happy. I, I'm an omnivore. I eat plenty of animals, but. I don't want them staring me down when I'm trying to uh, when I'm trying to uh, have dinner. Well, according to a myth, 
uh, many, many years ago at Queens College at the University of Oxford. A student was once attacked by a wild boar. He fought it off and killed it by hitting it with books of Aristotle and then presented it back oh. to, uh, no, 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 I, to I, the powers I get that. that. Aristotle was so heavy and ponderous that could easily kill a boar. That's a lot of books yeah. to, to well, kill he, a boar. I, even, I, just, even just one book of Aristotle is enough to do it, I think. That's why this is a myth. Another, <laughs> another meat I have not tried, and this is kind of nuts because I know people who hunt them a wild turkey. I would that, like to try a wild yeah. turkey. Hint, and, hint, nephew James. Yeah, and there's well, there's plenty of uh, and there's plenty of wild turkey in Iowa too. Mm. Yeah, they're all yeah. over, and yeah. they are well, huntable, we, unlike the Canadian geese. We've seen them in, in suburban Massachusetts, in in a densely populated suburb of Boston, on someone's roof. Yeah, <laughs> we've seen them walking down that was like very like, cool. like big streets. Yes. Yeah, I mean, in, like I, in, in, in Iowa, you, Iowa. <laughs> I mean, Iowa, you get them, you get them in the country. You might get one in the city once in a while. But in, in suburban Boston, they're like right there in the fabric of suburbia. Oh, so okay. yeah, they should be able to grab themselves a wild turkey easily, ah. within the law, of course. Well, number eleven on our list, or number ten, is the Yule log. I admit, I have had Yule log once. Have you had a Yule log? No, I don't eat wood. <laughs> well, I'm talking about the cake. Oh, okay, all right. It, it, it's a tradition from Norway, and a giant log was hoisted onto the hearth to celebrate the return of the sun each year. So, so what, um, they make a cake. It's a, it's a flat uh. sponge cake. It's chocolate. And then they roll it up with a hazelnut cream, and they, they decorate it like a real log and put little candied fruits and leaves and things so on it. So it looks like a log. Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't taste like one. Good, good. Okay. One more. Uh, number 11 I'd like to try is oyster dressing. Mm -hmm. Have you had oyster dressing? You're from the Eastern no, Coast. I, I, no, but you, you, I, I presume you put that on a boar's head? <laughs> well, it's just, I think it's just stuffing. Like oh, for your stuffing. Yeah, dressing. Ah, it's, not, it's, not like, it's not like a poured, like a salad dressing. That it's, could be a whole segment talking about, do you call it stuffing or dressing? Yeah, okay, dressing. Yeah. Well, it's more yeah. traditional in the South, but I'd like to taste it. Okay. Um, I don't even like fresh oysters. But I have tasted oyster stew, right. and I kind of like it. And drum roll, number 12. Number 12. This is, we're cheating a little. We have had this, but just this year. Roasted chestnuts. We didn't do it over an open fire. We did it in an iron pan in the oven. Okay, and not horse chestnuts. You will poison yourself. No, I, I wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't think yeah. of it. Yeah, and, and, there, and there, are, there are more and more people raising chestnuts because there's a bigger bigger market for them. And, you know, they were darn good. I would eat yeah, chestnuts again. They were good. Except and if it was stuffed into a boar's head. <laughs> <laughs> How about into the oyster stuffing? Maybe. Maybe the oyster stuffing. Okay. Kathy, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, folks, that's our 12, um, 12 meals of Christmas uh, <laughs> list for you here. Uh, that was fun. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, again, uh, thanks to our farm and food host, Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farms. Uh, farm Singular. Thanks to our callers today. Thanks also to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Remember, your support for this program matters a lot, folks. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.